Good morning. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Some of you know what this is, right? Behold. Well, we're going to see if it makes a difference. It may not. All right. We're looking at Mark chapter 8, 1 through 9 this morning. I'm calling this the disciples' makeup test. Mark 8, 1 to 9, the disciples' makeup test. Why, why do I call it a makeup test? Well, Mark, time and time again, has been demonstrating to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's his thesis. That's his, that's his mission statement. His, upon reading his gospel, you might know Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he has given us a number of of encounters with a great number of men and women and people with problems well beyond their ability to resolve. And time and time and time again, when, when it is painfully clear, when it is obvious that there, that, that, that there is no solution within their ability to provide, the God-man appears and he acts and he does so supernaturally. Think back to chapter 1. The leper, could he do anything to heal himself? No, but Christ could because he's God in the flesh. The paralytic, could he or his friends do anything to heal the man? That's right, no. But Jesus could. You know why? Because he's God in the flesh. What about the man with the withered hand, could he, could he do some therapy and, 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 and heal himself? Or could anybody heal his withered hand? No, but Jesus could. And why? Because he's God in the flesh. Could the disciples in chapter 4, could they do anything to calm the storm? Could they speak to it and expect the wind and the water to obey? No, but Jesus could because he's God in the flesh. That, that is the lesson. That is the cheap, chief object lesson of all of these tests, of all of these miracles, is that people might walk away knowing that Jesus is not just another man. He's God in the flesh. That was the lesson of Jesus' encounter with the demoniac, with Jairus, with the woman with the hemorrhage. All of these encounters with people who have problems that cannot be resolved by human merit, human strength, human resources. But they can with God's strength and God's merit and God's resources. Remember the feeding of the 5,000 men? group of up to 20 to 25,000 people, a stadium of people fed with five small wafers and two little pickled fish. And how many basket loads were, left, were, were picked up and recovered from the a- afterwards? Twelve baskets. So we, we, we see test after test after test, and we have to ask ourselves this question, are the disciples learning the lesson? Is the test doing and achieving its intended fu- function? Were they, were they concluding that Jesus, the teacher, the healer, the wonder worker, were they concluding 
that this Jesus is the very Son of God in the flesh? Were they learning this chief object lesson? Were they learning to look to Him for their solutions? Were they learning to trust in His provision, in His protection, in His prerogative? Were they learning to trust in Him as the Good Shepherd and as the chief overseer of their bodies and souls? The question is, beloved, just as the Israel was taught to look to their God, to look to the God of Israel, to trust in His provision, to trust in His care, and to be instructed by Him. Just as Israel was taught to look to God, were these men, you have to ask, were these men learning to look to the one who was doing the very same things as the God of Israel? I wonder why. Maybe it's because He is the God of Israel in their midst. We know that they failed this lesson the first time. Mark told us as much in the verses following the text. And so the Lord designs a makeup exam, a redo, a do-over. And here we find another problem, ironically, very similar to the first, where these men find themselves completely inadequate to resolve the problem. And We've outlined this text into two parts. The problem itself is built up in the course of the first five verses. The problem, verses 1 through 5, and then the provision, the Lord's provision in verses 6 through 9. Let's read the text. It would help if I'm in Mark and not Jeremiah. See, I'm losing seconds. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate desolate place to satisfy these people and he was asking them how many loaves do you have and they said seven he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them and they served them to the people they also had a few small fish and after he had blessed them He ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Now notice we aren't told explicitly where Jesus was. We're told that this miracle that this miraculous feeding the second miraculous feeding happened as mark says in verse one in those days well in what days this is this is the the days that he was withdrawing from galilee withdrawing from his public teaching and and going on rare occasions something he didn't typically do he's going to gentile territories like tyre 
and like Decapolis. You see that in chapter 7, verse 31. And I believe Decapolis is the region where he is still in. That was the last region mentioned. And so it's in this this predominantly Gentile location. Decapolis is a Greek name. It means the ten cities. It was located on the southeast uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and even though it was within a the Jewish state, within Galilee, the name is Greek. And archaeologists have found uh, remnants and... and um, They've discovered uh, 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 pagan idols in their ar- archaeological digs. And so there's good reason to think that they are, that they are predominantly Gentile. Now, I, I, I spent quite a bit of time trying to demonstrate why I think that they're Gentiles and not Jews. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who they are. So, Daniel, mark it. I'm letting it go. It's not, re- it's not really important who they are as much as what they have been doing. Mark's emphasis on, is on the crowd's predicament, their, their problem. And the crowd's problem, the problem that they pose, sets the stage for the disciples' test. 8.1 tells us that there was again a large crowd amassing around Jesus. You, you might wonder, how is this so? I mean, he's going into Gentile territory. He where he didn't typically go. How is it that everyone knows who Jesus is? Well, if you go back to 736, after Jesus healed the deaf and the mute man, and he said, now don't tell anybody. Did they obey? No, they they told it all the more. And then if you go back even further to Mark chapter 5, remember with the demoniac, if you look in verses 18 to 20, Jesus, uh, the demoniac, the healed demoniac, wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be Jesus' disciple. And what does Jesus tell him? You go back to your own people. You go, you go home. You tell them what the Lord has done. What does Mark 5, uh, it's either 19 or 20, where does it say he went? Decapolis. And so since, not only in the last chapter, chapter 7, but ever since Mark chapter 5, has this been months? Has this been a whole year? The, the, the whole region has been seeded with proclamation of jesus and so he shows up here in the beginning of verse eight in a in a what i believe is a gentile area they're not expecting a jewish messiah but all of a sudden everybody knows who jesus is so fame of the healer and the teacher has continued to spread even when he goes to a gentile area and again again jesus finds a massive crowd around him now that that's not new are, are, are we surprised that a massive crowd is around Jesus? That in itself wasn't, well, it was problematic, but as I said, it's not, it wasn't anything new. But what was new about this crowd is that they have been so thoroughly captivated by his presence, by his teaching, by his words, perhaps by his healing as well, that they have been with him for three days and they now have nothing to eat. There are consequences There is fruit to their captivation that builds up the problem that Jesus then poses to the disciples. There is a consequence to their captivation. Verse 2 tells us that they have, when Jesus is describing why he has compassion for them, they have remained with him for how long? Three days. In the previous feeding, they had only been with him for one day, and then he fed them. These folks have been with him for three days. 
days, they have been so thoroughly enraptured by his gracious words. They could not get enough of Jesus' teaching that they would stay with him for three days in a desolate place. And there, there, there's a lesson for us all there, that we might desire the pure milk of the word like these Decapolians, that we might be satiated by the word of God and be filled with the knowledge of God. And oh, that we might desire his word like them. That we might yearn for the full counsel of the word of God and learn to endure, to patiently endure and receive the preaching of the word and not grow weary when on occasion the preacher may push the time limit a little bit. Just saying. But there's, you know, there, there, when, if we're going to be honest, there's a lesson for the preacher too, right? Isn't, isn't there a, 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 an incentive that the preacher himself ought to study diligently the word of God that he might accurately handle and divide the word of God that he might in some semblance to, to some degree capture the, 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 the skill of the Lord Jesus himself, that the preacher might be like Christ in his preaching and proclamation of the word. There's a lesson for both of us here. Secondly, in addition to being with him for three days, there's a result of that. They now have nothing to eat. That's tragic, my friends. They now have nothing to eat. This is actually the first thing that Mark tells us about this large crowd. In those days, there was a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. And then he repeats that again. He repeats that in the words of Jesus in verse 2. That they've been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. So whatever rations they had, whatever provisions they had, dried nuts, dried fruits, loaves or wafers or little pickled fish, whatever they had to eat, it has all been consumed up. And there's nothing left. A third factor that builds up the, the it, it raises the roof, it, 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 it magnifies the, the problem, is that the people are far away from their homes. They are in the midst, they, they are somewhere around these ten cities. It, it wasn't ten cities that were all built right next to each other, they were kind of scattered around this region. And they are somewhere in the vicinity of these ten cities, but they are in a desolate place. This isn't some place that you would vacation. You know, we, 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 like, we, we love the idea of going out into the wilderness, you know, in our Prius or our RV or Ford Focus, Volkswagen Rabbit. We, we love driving out, an hour or two out into the desolate, barren wasteland. Well, not, not everything... Everything grows here, so there's no wasteland here. But we, we, we love the idea of getting out into nature and being rugged, being authentic. And then we drive in our Prius back, back here, back to air-conditioned homes, secure, homes with security, homes with a refrigerator that's been keeping our food nice and safe for us to eat. These people are far away from their home. And they have nothing to eat, and if they are sent away hungry, unless something is done for them, what does Jesus say is going to happen to them? Can they be sent home without something to eat? 
what will happen to them? They will faint. It's a really interesting word. It, it describes uh, like the, a bowstring that is unslung. And what, what happens? If you take a bow and you take the string off the bow, what happens to the string? It just collapses. It grows limp. You just picture that string dangling, unable to pull itself up. That is what would happen to these people. They will faint on the way. They will collapse, and they will expire in this desolate wilderness. And fourth, the fourth detail that Mark provides, it's actually, uh, we're already told it was a large crowd, but he he tells us specifically how large it was all the way down in verse 9. There were 4,000. Matthew 1538 specifies 4,000 men besides women and children. So a good estimation is somewhere between sixteen to 20,000 people. That's a stadium, folks. That is a stadium of people with nothing. Could, could you imagine being at the Mariners game? No hot dogs, no popcorn, no... What do they eat there? I don't know. Yeah, no garlic fries, nothing. And they how long has it been since they've been away from their homes and their fridges? Maybe an hour or two? Can you imagine that number of people out in the desolate wilderness with nothing to eat? 20,000 peoples. There's another thing. It's not a description of the crowd. It's, it's Jesus' response. There's another thing that adds to the problem. It lends weight to the problem that the the disciples are given, and that is the compassion of Christ. Picking up at the bottom of verse 1, well, notice that he calls his disciples over. He says to them, he says, I feel compassion. And he explains much of what we just looked at. But in in addition to what we know about the crowd, Jesus calls his disciples over. He wants something to be done. And the implication is, is you men need to do something about it. I want something to be done for them. What are you going to do so that I get what I want? What are you going to do so that they get what they need? He has compassion for them. Now, if you remember in the first feeding, Jesus' compassion, it was provided as an editorial note by Mark, meaning Jesus didn't announce, he didn't say, I have compassion for them. Mark, looking back, perhaps because Jesus voices it here, perhaps that's why Mark included that editorial description in the previous feeding, but Jesus feels compassion because he sees, he has the eyes of a shepherd and he looks and sees that this massive crowd is a lost people. He sees their spiritual neglect. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. He sees, he assesses them and he knows they are destitute, they are lost, they are neglected, and they are a wandering people. Here, nothing is said about their spiritual state. Jesus' compassion is roused because of a mere physical need. They have consumed all they have. 
they now have nothing. And because they have nothing, Jesus is concerned. That's just amazing to think about, that the eternal God of the universe, the eternally, infinitely holy God of the universe is concerned because his creatures, his creation, don't have any bread. That concerns the eternal God. Think about that. Psalm 103, 14 says, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He is mindful of us. Even more personal, in the same vein, even more personal is the Lord's words on the Sermon of the Mount. You can see that in Matthew 6, 26 and following. He says, Look to the birds of the air. They, they don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father does what? He feeds them. And aren't you worth more than they? Then he also says to look to the grass of the field. If, if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? Why have such little faith? The the Gentiles, those outside of the covenant knowledge of God, those who don't know His mercy and compassion, they worry, they are anxious over these things, food and clothing and provision and shelter. But don't you worry about these things. Why? Because your heavenly Father knows you need them. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and what? They will, some, they will mostly be added to you. Some will be added to you. What does it say? All these things will be added to you. Why? Because God is a compassionate, considerate God, and he knows that we are but dust. That promise is forged out of the heart of a compassionate God who who is not only concerned over our souls. He is mindful not only of our souls, but even our bodies, which is why I suppose that we aren't going to spend eternity existing as some glorified Hufflepuff in the skies. We will have a resurrected, glorified body that God carefully, intricately designed and that Jesus Christ bled and died for on the cross that he might redeem. He died that he might redeem your soul. He also died that he might redeem your body. He cares about the body. And if he cares about bodies, you can trust that he is responsive to and and that he provides the needs for body. Beloved, I, I hope you see that Christ himself embodies compassion. I've said before, I'll say again, there's never been a more compassionate man. He is driven to show compassion. Which is why in Colossians 3.12, when Colossians 3, Paul is telling us to, to put off the old man, to put on the new man that's being remade in the image of our creator. What is the first thing he tells you to put on in the new man? A heart of compassion. The first thing Paul tells you in that list 
to be like Christ is to be compassionate, to put a heart of compassion. And those of you who have been with me for a while knows that this is my favorite word in the Greek. Can anyone say it? What? All right. Good job, Don. Yes. Splachna, uh, that's the, you said the verb form, but yeah. Splachnizomai. Splachna, the, the, the innards, the, the inside, the inner man, the organs, the viscera. It's where you feel it when you see someone suffering, when you see someone hurting. Jesus Christ embodies compassion. And because he embodies compassion, because he wants compassion to be shown to this crowd, the disciples have got to do something if Jesus is going to get what he wants. And he's the master, he's the teacher, he should get what, he should get what he wants. And there's one more part of the problem. The first two considerations we've had, the, the, the crowd itself and their dilemma, and the fact that Jesus wants something to be done for them, poses this problem, this, this test for, that the disciples need to do something, right? And it's often been said that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And guess what part the disciples showed themselves to be? Jesus wants them to be part of the solution. What part do you think they're going to be? And their response actually builds up the, the tension even more. You consider the crowd, the, the captivation of the crowd, the compassion of Christ, and now the consternation of the disciples. Looking at verse 4, Disciples answered him, where will anyone, where, where can anyone find bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Oh, beloved, th- this, is, this is tragic. This is tragic. These men, after failing to learn the feeding of the 5,000, they are now given a, a, a softball pitch. What, um, what, what, you know, what, when you're when you're when you want someone to hit the ball, do you throw a Roger Clemens fastball? Do you throw an, uh, a Nolan Ryan or a Wayne Gretzky fastball or curveball? Do you, do you throw something like that? What do you do when you when you want your small child who's not very skilled with a bat? You you gently toss. No tricks. You don't put any high amount of skill into that pitch. You put it right in front of them. You even use a T-ball, a little stake. You make ev- you make it everything right, everything possible, so that they can hit that ball. And that is what Jesus is doing for the disciples in this text. It is the exact same scenario. Some details are different, but it's virtually the same thing. And Everything is set for them to hit it out of the park, and they absolutely fumble the ball. I mean, talk about a facepalm moment. I wonder if Jesus thought of the face of the facepalm meme when this happened. It is just I could almost you could almost hear Jesus groan and sigh at their response. 
You would think this would be a walk in the park for them. You would think that by now they would have learned something of all, from all the miracles, especially when one of them is virtually the same thing. Same problem. And did, you, did Jesus not show himself to be able to provide? You, you, would, think, you would think that, it, that when he asked them how many loaves you have, you would think that they would give some semblance, some modicum of trust. Well, we only have seven, but that's enough because we remember what you did last time. We only have seven, but you're here. Or they could have just said enough. And what's really interesting is, is Mark provides the, the verb in uh, Jesus was asking them how many loaves you have. That's the imperfect. It means he's, he's asking them more than once. I wonder, is, did he ask the whole group, how many do you have? And then he asks this one disciple, and then that one disciple. Maybe he asked them individually. Maybe he asked the whole group multiple times. Maybe he's giving them multiple chances to, to, to get it right this time. And then Mark tells their response in, in this past tense. He doesn't give us any details. Just, it's just a matter of fact this is how they answered. All they, as if to say all they could say was seven. What a pain, painful description of their failure to grasp the lesson, not only of the loaves from the last time, but of all the, less, of all the tests, of all the miracles. But a failure to grasp the one thing that they needed to walk away with after being witnesses of these things, and that's with Christ, all things are possible because the eternal God is standing and walking in their midst, and he is fully able. He is fully willing to do something if they would but just look to him. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that sad and, and pitiful? We, we, I, we can say that here. Isn't that pitiful? Don't you feel bad for them that they haven't gotten it by now? And this is sad. This is, but it, isn't this relatable? If, if we would be honest with ourselves, don't you think that we might see ourselves in their spiritual dullness, in their slowness of heart? I, I am convinced that at times our grasp of God's goodness, our grasp of his compassion for us and his readiness and his willingness to do good on our behalf is, is, is like something written on an Etch-a-Sketch and no sooner does, does suffering come along, no sooner than a trial comes along that everything you've learned about God's goodness and his faithfulness gets shaken up and you've got to learn it all over again. Not only is this crowd in a bad spot, and not only does Jesus want something done for them, but the problem is heightened because the men to whom he's expecting a positive response of faith from, he's not going to get it from them. And so the problem has been built and built and built. And so it's time for Christ himself to 
graciously take matters into his own hands. And he, it's time for him, it's time for the Lord to take command and to take care of the crowd, looking at his provision. I mean, do you see the problem? Has the problem been set in your mind? Now we look at the provision. Verse 6. So he directs the people to sit down. He takes the seven loaves. He gave thanks. He broke them. He, and he starts giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they serve it to the people, just like last time. Amazing. He does here exactly what he did last time. They also had a few small fish. After he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and they were satisfied and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. And how many were there? 4,000 people or 4,000 men besides women and children? Oh, how good it is when the Lord Jesus takes command of a situation. He does precisely. The results of this intervention are precisely what they were the last time. Directs the people to sit down. He commands them. He orders them to sit down. And while they're obeying, he takes the seven loaves. He gives thanks for them. And he breaks them. And again, I have to nerd out just a little bit with, with the grammar he broke, he, he broke them. Again, this is that past tense, just matter of fact, it happened. And then he starts giving, or he was giving, imperfect. Again, he's giving and giving. And no sooner does he give it to this disciple that, that this disciple goes and distributes it to the crowd, that he comes back and, oh, there's more bread. If you're not, if you're not paying attention, you, you might miss the miracle. Because there's no human explanation for how a man could take seven loaves and a few small fish and feed 5,000 men besides women and children. He just, he bro- it's, it's like he judo chopped the bread and in an explosion of, of divine power, bread just explodes into existence. He broke it once and gives and gives like, like a divine sprinkler. He gives and gives and gives and gives. And it didn't matter, beloved, if there were 4,000 men or 40,000 men or 400,000 men or 4 million men besides women and children. If the, whole, if the whole universe showed up, if every person on the planet showed up, he would have distributed enough bread and still had leftovers. And just like last time, they ate, and they were satisfied. Remember when we looked at that word "satisfied"? So it's a it's a, 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 a animal husbandry word. It, it speaks to an animal being uh, fed to the point that they stop eating because they they gone done grazed, fully satisfied, satiated. Fat, you could almost say fattened up. Everybody in this massive crowd were satisfied and there were still seven large baskets. And now in the last incident, the twelve you would th- you would think, well hey, there were twelve baskets last time and there's seven baskets now, so maybe maybe like is there a decline in power? No. The the baskets in the last time were were um, little one man baskets, little one person baskets that you might, you know, collect fruit in or nuts or 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 something. 
and it was it was light enough that one person could carry. These are massive man baskets or maskets. They, these were these were large enough that th- this is the this is the kind of basket that it, in um, in Acts nine when Paul is being left out let out of a window down the walls of Damascus, he was being let down in a basket. This is this is that kind of basket, and so. Yeah, there's less baskets, but the baskets are massive. They're huge. So not only do the people just not have a snack on their, to, 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 to help them get home, they are fully stuffed. They are fully satiated. They, it, it, they have more than enough calories worth of food in their bellies to last them the way home and then some. And even then, there is still seven massive man baskets full of, of leftovers. And you, you would wonder, as, the, as Jesus dismisses the crowd, you would wonder as the disciples. Now, you know, beforehand, there were 12 disciples, there were 12 baskets. Each, each disciple would feel the weight of the leftover food. Now, two of them have to carry each of, uh, each of these baskets. And you're wondering, as they feel the weight of the filled basket, have they learned the lesson? That their teacher and master isn't just some man, he's the son of God. He is God incarnate, he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. And the next, you can see in the next, next passage if you want to read ahead. You can see if they've walked, if they've grasped that truth, if they have, if they have walked away with that truth. And I'm not going to get into that because I don't want to steal Carl's thunder. But we might ask ourselves, what can we walk away with from this passage? And there's three things I want to share. One is that I might encourage you to trust in the kindness and in the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I want you to consider that Jesus felt compassion. His innards were were churning on a people who did not know him. They did not know him salvifically. We're not told anything about their spiritual condition, but we know in the, in the uh, pages of Acts that there weren't many in Galilee. There were only 500 disciples in Galilee. And there's 20,000 people around. And so you do the math. There are not many genuine believers who know the Lord salvifically in this group, and yet he is feeling compassion for them. He is tender and kind and sympathetic to outsiders and strangers and to people who only follow him out of fickle and fleeting curiosity. Beloved, how much more will he show himself good and compassionate and faithful and kind to those that he does know salvifically? How much more, if, if he is this moved to show compassion and concern over those who reject him and do not know him and shun his teaching, how much more will he be good to you and providing to you who are in his sheepfold, to you who are his disciples? Beloved, you need to grow 
in your trust of the kindness and compassion of the Lord. Now I'm, I'm speaking to myself too. I need to grow in this. Take all your cares and concerns before his throne. Do you remember, you remember the microcosm of, of the Christian life according to R.C. Sproul in, in 1 Peter 5? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all of your anxieties upon him for he cares for you because he's compassionate for you. R.C. Sproul that, that, that said that's basically the, that's the Christian life. That is the Christian faith in a nutshell. Cast your anxieties before him because he cares for you. Go to him in prayer. Beloved, I need to ask you, what burdens do you have on your heart? What is keeping you up at night? What propels you to frustration? What leads you to despair? Beloved, what, what makes you cry when you think nobody's looking? Because there is one who always sees you and he knows what's in your heart. He knows your anxieties. He knows your cares. Trust Grow in your trust of his kindness and his compassion. Second, which is like the first, is to make sure in your heart that with Christ, nothing is impossible. You could say that the first principle in this is to trust in his willingness to benefit you and to care for you. Secondly, trust in his ability to provide and to care for you. Make sure in your heart, solidify in your heart that with Christ, nothing is impossible because he is God in the flesh. And make that concrete in your mind now before the storm hits so that when it does hit, when the suffering hits, when the frustration hits, when the anxieties hit, when you are beset by that trial, you are ready knowing that you are cared for. You are ready knowing that you are provided for. Beloved, trust that nothing is too hard for the Lord. So trust in his intention to care for you. Trust in his ability to care for you. Then third... Strive to be like the Lord Jesus in his dealings, in your, rather, in your dealings with the people of this world. He was kind to people who had really had nothing to offer him back. Might that we be kind and generous in giving of ourselves to, to those that God might place in our path, and to be like Christ and to be selfless, to, to offer up unconditional love to those who have nothing to give back to us, to, to be courteous and to have goodwill and to have mercy on others when we are wrong, to be gracious to others who cannot pay it back. Can we do those things? Can we, can we grow in those Christian disciplines? I think we can. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we must simply offer up a word of 
praise and thanksgiving when we are yet again reminded of how kind and compassionate you are. How unlike us. How unlike us who are prone to be selfish, who are prone to wander, you are steadfast and you are faithful and you are forever good and kind and true. And I pray, Lord, that for any who, for any here who waver in their conviction, that you are not only willing to be compassionate, but you are always able to be compassionate and to work together all things for good for us who are called. For anybody here who wavers, Lord, fortify their heart. Fortify our faith. Teach us to look to you always. Amen.